Hi everyone, welcome once again to ACB webinars. Today we're gonna to be talking about snacks. What a great topic. First of all, thank you to everyone who attended this webinar. Second, thank you to our allies, ACME, GADEGAN, Generation S, Global Corporate Venturing, Innova360, IBCA, LabCamp, BC Academy. And obviously, thank you so much to our panelists. First of all, let me introduce Enfriti Hayaraman. Thank you so much, Enfriti, for being today available. She's principal of Evolve Ventures. She has experience on advising and investing in leading technology and consumer businesses to her role as founding principal of Evolve Ventures. Evolve operates as a venture capital investment company and focuses on early stage technology companies. Thank you, Spriti, for being today. We also thank you, Harrison Fuckman. He's the co-founder and CEO of The Naked Company. The company owns a portfolio of food and beverage brands that focus on healthier living and includes the Flock Kitchen Chips Project uh, Breakfast and Able Crazy Avocado Puffs. Prior to starting the Naked Company, Harrison ran Great Swiss Venture Capital Coverage Business and spent time in their New York, San Francisco, and Hong Kong offices. Thank you so much, Harrison, for being today with us as well. So let's start. So first of all, how has snacking behavior and especially healthy snacking in general evolved in the past decade? And what have been the main drivers of this evolution? Maybe you can start with yours, Riti. Sure. Um, hello, everyone. Uh, great to be here. Thank you so much to uh, the Arca Ventures team for, for having me and I think highlighting a, a very interesting topic that it's especially timely, uh, you know, at, at this point in time. Um, you know, snacking culture has transformed, I think, in, in the last decade and certainly in the last few years. Um, now, I think when we think of snacks, we think of, you know, nuts or protein or uh, you know, sugar-free, dairy-free, gluten-free instead of a packet of chips. Um, you know, I think some of the most recent data suggests that up to 80% of snacks on a skew basis in the market today can be tagged as kind of healthy or better for you. Um, and that the healthy snack industry is sort of a, you know, 70 to $80 billion industry today that's likely to be a $100 billion industry globally in just a few years. So, um, you know, it's obviously a space that's that's gone through a transformation in recent years that I think we're very excited about here at Evolve and, and certainly with our main LP, Kraft Heinz, um, really trying to push the envelope in, in, in you know, the, the healthy snacks category as well, and also being aware of how the ecosystem is shifting. You know, in terms of drivers, I think there's probably a few things that are responsible for the growth of kind of healthy, better for you snacks. Um, one is simply the, the, you know, coming of age of the millennial population, right, which is now the majority of the purchasing population, you know, this is a group of people that grew up in the age of information. Um, you know, they, they understand, you know, what goes into food products, they care about what goes into their bodies and they spend more on food and experiences than, you know, material goods as compared to other generations. So, it, you know, it's a group of people that represent the majority of, of the purchasing population that now cares more than ever about what's going in their body and they're willing to pay for it, right? Um, two is I think we've just seen some really interesting technological advancements, right? Um, that allow us to identify and proliferate he healthy ingredients at scale and at a cost that uh, actually makes sense, um, you know, like never before, right? Whether it's synthetic biology or fermentation capabilities or AI and machine learning that's used in kind of ingredient identification or product development processes. Um, and, and then also, you know, on the consumer side, technologies that have enabled people to, to pay more attention, right, to their health and wellness, whether it's wearables and fitness tracking type apps. Um, and so technology, both on the food side and just generally on the health and wellness side, has sort of enabled, right, that, that type of um, kind of dialogue in the market and um, given people the ability to sort of measure and monitor what's going into their bodies and then given brands the ability to produce food, you know, at, at price points that make sense uh, to address those needs. Um, and maybe the last one, you know, kind of just to highlight is, is just sort of the, the market dynamics around kind of this direct to consumer economy, right? Um, some of the, the innovations and trends in shipping, logistics, and even just sort of, um, you know, digital capabilities and kind of the, the growth of the digitally native brand, right? Um, which essentially, you know, as I look at it, has, has enabled the growth of the challenger brand, unlike ever before. Um, you know, it's a, an ecosystem that sustains the development of more brands 
um, built around if often health, wellness, cleanliness, sustainability, themes that allow them to differentiate and they can do so with lower barriers to entry because they can build the brand entirely online. And in many cases, they can also sell entirely online. Um, and that's allowed so many brands to, to make a name for themselves, whether it's, you know, names like over the last decade, like Grays, like Ano Aloha, um, Nature Box that have built a business around healthy snacking um, and, and really allow them to compete with large legacy brands that had dominated retail for, for years and years. So I think those are the few things going on, but I'll, I'll pause there. Thank you, Harrison. What are your thoughts about these? Yeah, it's really well articulated, and and I think the the th you know the the two or three major points there around uh, what's driving this better for you trend being the millennial and 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 uh, Gen Z uh, penetration through the market as well as technological changes are massive drivers. I, I, the one thing I would add on to that is you know, we really live in, in a digital information age where consumers have unparalleled access to information. And, and as such, over the past decade, consumers have really been, uh, uh, have got more educated about different diets. And that's enabled new new age, better for you trends to, to, to really take off. And whether that's plant-based, uh, intermittent fasting, high protein, low carb, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and you know, then when you overlay the, the changed uh, competitive dynamics, which Smurdy touched on, particularly around D 2 C, which enables new age brands to uh, to uh, to see those new trends taking form in the market, and in a very quick and capital efficient manner, uh, get brands to market uh, to meet consumers' needs that aren't necessarily being addressed by uh, by incumbents, create a, a really special uh, flywheel effect, which. Uh, only continues to grow and grow over time. Thanks so much, Harrison, for your thoughts. Um, so, I mean, just to get into the topic a little bit more, how would you define a better for you brand in snacks specifically? Perhaps we can start with you, Harrison. Yeah, well, the, the way we think about better for you is uh, we look at a existing incumbents and, and market leaders, and we look at uh, the nutritional profile ingredient panel that uh, accompanies those uh, th those market leaders, uh, and then we look at a better for you brand would be something that has a, a nutritional value proposition to a consumer that improves off of the existing incumbent. Uh, you know, obviously, the cleanest form of eating is really tough to address when you're in uh, certain you know uh, categories like salty snacks. So we think about it as a as a as a gradual improvement to what's on uh, what's on the shelf today. Great. What are your thoughts, Shmriti? Yeah, I, I you know agree with what Harrison said. I think you know the other piece is a lot of what we see in the market, which I think is both positive and then maybe is going to be a challenge as as this category moves forward. Is you have better for you in a lot of sort of like individual slivers addressing specific needs or pain points, right? You have sugar-free, you have low sodium, low fat, dairy-free, gluten-free, free range, organic, like certified this and that, right? If you're looking more at the sustainability side, um, but it's been hard for, for uh, certainly for legacy brands or larger brands, but even for emerging players to address multiple of those needs. What's, what's great about that approach is um, you know, often populations have sort of like, okay, I would like to eat better generally, but there's a specific pain point, right, that I care most about. Maybe I have a heart health issue, so I want, you know, low cholesterol, or I have a sodium issue, I want low sodium. So you're able to address those individual pain points and give people a range of options. You know, for example, like Kraft Heinz, which to use, use the examples has, I, I forget the exact number now, but it's like over 50 plus ketchup skews, right? And it's like, how many different ways can you slice ketchup? Actually, you know what, you can, right? And it's, there's low sugar and then there's no added sugar. And then there's, you know, so there's so many different versions. I think it's, it's a great step in the right direction. I think the next iteration of that is better for you you know, all around, right? The same way like alternative protein companies started with, okay, we're gonna be a little higher sodium, higher fat, but we're gonna deliver on the taste profile you're looking for. Can Gen 2.0 be, we're gonna deliver on that taste and texture profile, but also actually be sort of generally a, a better product, right? And I think that's gonna take innovation. Um, I think the other piece is, you know, if you look at the top 10 brands in the snacking world today in the US, it's still, you know, Ritz, Fritos, Cheetos, Pringles, um, I think, I don't know if Oreos are in that list, right? But it, it, it's not the challenger brands yet. So I think, um, you know, we expect to see 
parallel innovation, both with emerging brands, but also we love to see sort of larger brands like taking steps with some of these iconic, you know, products, right? Where the impact on, on the global population and the US population, in the case of the brands I just mentioned, um, will be a lot more substantial if they can make sort of small tweaks, right, to, to those brands. No, and I'm glad that you are touching this point about all these value, different value propositions that uh, emerging brands are, are uh, tr trying to tackle today to, to, to offer a better experience and a, a, a better uh, product to, to the end customer. And right now we have a lot of value propositions in snacking, right? In, in, in terms of healthy snacking. So we, we have uh, from uh, allergen-free and gluten-free products, we can also have plant-based proteins, uh, vegan and organic offerings. So is any of these claims or value propositions more relevant than the other? Or how do emerging brands uh, should decide in which of these uh, characteristics or value propositions to focus on? I don't know, Shmritik, perhaps you can continue your thoughts. Yeah, um, it, it's a great question. And I actually think, you know, Harrison's model with what they're doing at the naked market is is a brilliant one because they're actually leveraging data to make those decisions. And and as he kind of mentioned, you know, the, the beauty of building a brand um, online and that's nimble and agile is that you can quickly iterate on that data and decide what to do about it and which market to go after and which with, with which type of product. I think, you know, as investors, the way we think about it is, is kind of where does like the top down meet the bottom up, right? Uh, the top down being what sort of like the technology unlock or like the unique, you know, attribute of the product that, that we've figured out that has prevented others from being able to build a healthier product before. Uh, and then the top down being like, what is the market, right? What is the size of the potential market here? What's the consumer need that we're trying to, to fill? Um, you know, and to give an example, a tangible example of that, we have a company in our portfolio called New Culture, which is building lab-grown dairy-free cheese, um, essentially replicating, um, you know, caseins, which are the, the fundamental kind of protein building blocks in, in traditional cheese, but doing so, you know, without any animal inputs whatsoever. Um, and, and the way they thought about it is, you know, their unlock was they developed a bacterial fermentation process uh, to, to secrete these caseins and, you know, it's, it's highly technical and I don't, I don't pretend to be uh, a, a synthetic biologist, um, but, uh, you know, they, they figured out this process and the right inputs and the right sort of uh, steps to, to achieve this, which is the kind of technology unlock. And then they said, okay, you know, what do we want to go after, right? Um, and mozzarella is the largest cheese segment in the US by far. I think it's like a third of, of US cheese sales are mozzarella. And that's largely driven by the pizza industry, right? Which makes a lot of sense. And so their first product to market is going to be a pizza cheese. And, and their first sort of product that they're developing at a high level is the mozzarella, right? Um, and so that's kind of how they thought about it is like, okay, here's our technology. Here's the market we're going after. And you know, it's, it's, it's a growing market. It's a large market. Um, and we're addressing, you know, to your point, some of the pain points we think the market has demonstrated they care about, right? So their cheese will be cholesterol-free because there are no animal fats in it. It'll certainly be, you know, dairy-free um, and, uh, you know, animal-free, so, you know, purely vegan, but it'll also be lactose-free, right? Which is um, really interesting for the U.S., but is actually especially interesting for markets like Asia, where the lactose-free population is in, in some countries 50% of, of the population plus. So, um, you know, I think, I don't know, hopefully that's a, a good example of kind of the, the top down meets bottom up approach to figuring out how individual brands can go tackle a market. And there are obviously, you know, several opportunities out there. No, terrific. I don't know, Harrison, do you agree? Perhaps you can give your thoughts about how you use the data. Yeah, ha happy to, to touch on, uh, sorry, I was muted there. Uh, happy to touch on how, how we think about this, and and as as you nailed that it, it's it's uh, it's making sure that we have clean access to data that dictate the trends that are really taking off and resonating with consumers, and that's everything from uh, search search trend data to social listening to uh, just general category analysis, and uh, you know we we think in in that context you, you just sometimes there can be a mismatch between you know maybe what the press is covering and where the dollars are going versus where some of the untapped uh, opportunities are that, that are seeing a lot of traction. And, you know, so for example, one trend that, uh, that we're very excited about and obviously is no secret is uh, the high protein, low carb 
uh, movement. And, you know, that's reflected in uh, being atop a of Amazon search volume as, uh, as well as the, the, the broader operating metrics we track across our brands and, uh, and, and others and uh, something like uh, meat consumption and meat snacks, for example, where uh, you, know, you see a category that's at uh, all time high consumptions growing 19% year on year. Uh, you know, still 80 times the size of, of uh, the plant-based alternative market, but not seeing the same focus around innovation uh, as, as plant-based al alternatives. And, uh, and so that would be you know, the, the general summation of, of how we think about things and, and a couple of the trends that, uh, that, that, we, generally, uh, that we generally like. And, and for instance, today, obviously we have a lot of technology, we have e-commerce booming, and, and obviously you have the incumbent brands and emerging brands, but specifically for emerging brands, how can they launch really successfully in this digital first environment, Harrison? Yeah, so our, our you know, this is, this is you know, our, our, our DNA. We are uh, a, a digital first company, uh, you know, in Q1, 100% of our, of our revenue came from uh, e-commerce. It's how we launch uh, every brand. Uh, I'd say one, you know, th there's a lot of great tools out there that didn't exist even three to five years ago uh, around, you know, it, obviously Shopify led the charge, but, but the apps built around the Shopify ecosystem uh, that, that make getting a, a, a V1 website up really, really clean and uneasy and, and any add-ons around that, whether it's uh, subscription or landing page testing or tools to help you generate high-end creative. Uh, and so you can bring a brand to, to market and, you know, tens, $10,000 plus minus on uh, like from a kind of e-com infrastructure perspective when years ago it would have taken uh, magnitudes of, uh, of, of those dollars. And it's just a bit of, I think what's also really cool is, is it, it, it really is just a bit of, of roll your sleeves up work to figure all this stuff out. Uh, so you don't need, you know, an advanced coding background and, you roll your sleeves up. You have a minimum threshold of capital to to pay for these things, and and you can uh, you can get a website up and, and start gathering data in a in a pretty clean and efficient way. And as an investor in Shruti, do you recommend any specific things to do for those emerging brands to be better positioned in this digital environment? Yeah, um, it, it's a good question. I mean, I think Harrison hit on on all of the different tools out there, and I think it's there's there's definitely um, you know it's easier almost than ever before, right, to build a brand online and, and launch a product online. I think a couple areas where we see brands stand out, and I think are are really important principles to to succeed when doing that. I think one is you know really leveraging like your digital presence as a tool for brand engagement and awareness, right? At the end of the day. You know, as much as consumer preferences are changing around health and wellness and sustainability, snacking is still about, you know, familiarity, comfort, indulgence. It's like this moment in the day, you know, where you have like a moment to yourself and there, you know, I think there's like this, this kind of personal nature, right, to the, the art of snacking. And because those things haven't changed, you know, brands that are emerging in the snacking world still need to appeal to those things. And I think all these digital tools and this presence you have online is a huge opportunity to engage the modern consumer, right? And that I think that means leveraging all the tools Harrison talked about, but also making sure, you know, you've got a, a strong mobile presence, right? If that's your target consumer and you know they're gonna engage with you on, on mobile, you know, affiliating yourself with, with certain channels and brands and, and having a message that's really clear and resonates with consumers and using kind of your digital presence to do that. Um, I, I think, you know, that the, and, and by the way, for, I think that large legacy brands feel like they need to now do that as well, because emerging brands have done a good job of that. So, you know, even you see like um, snacks.com, which is Pepsi's sort of like online storefront effort is, is really a, a, you know, a, not really a revenue generator for them. It's a, it's a part of their strategy to compete online for for you know, visibility, right? And for, for share of digital space amongst other brands because that's where consumers are engaging with brands now. Um, the, the maybe counterpoint to that I think is, um, is, is for brands to, even while they're being built online and scaling online and leveraging those tools to be aware um, of what their omni-channel strategy really is, right? And I think knowing simple things like knowing the difference between your point of acquisition and your point of retention, right? 
um, you know, maybe it makes perfect sense for you to be entirely online, but maybe it also makes sense for you to be in the checkout aisle of certain types of stores, because that's where your consumer is going to turn this from a one-time discovery of a snack and, and getting excited about it to a recurring, you know, I'm purchasing this every time at the checkout. Or maybe you have to be on Instacart and buying the right SEO terms, because that's still the regular way that your, you know, target consumer is going to be purchasing their, their weekly groceries and therefore their snacks, right? So I think not being totally blind to maybe some of the traditional channels uh, and ways that the consumers are still going to also continue to engage with food and beverage, um, you know, is an important part of, I, I think, the emerging brand strategy when it comes to digital as well. Sounds good. So, uh, so you you were talking right now about about obviously omnichannel, uh, and and what would be you know apart from that, are there any any key items, and why it's that so important for better for you brands to have this omnichannel strategy. Is physical retail still important as it was before, or it's not any longer important? And also, how should brands weigh the importance they give to both to physical and digital channels? Maybe we can start with you, Harrison. Uh, absolutely, yeah. So uh, traditional retail is 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 key. Uh, Ninety plus percent of food and beverage consumption still comes offline, and even the ten percent plus minus that is online, there's a lot of friction in that process, right? So uh, the the transactional side of, of food and beverage where uh, you, you want a product that in the next hour, you want to buy uh, one beverage, that doesn't exist online. Online, you're going and things are traditionally bundled together. So you're paying $20, $30 for uh, you know, six, eight, 12 packs to then show up at your door uh, you know, several days later. Uh, and so combination of uh, market size plus friction uh, leads leads uh, you know brands to to really uh, need if if they want to properly scale to have a, a traditional retail strategy. I think the the power of of direct to consumer um, as a tool to launch that uh, that that retail strategy is is super exciting because. A, a brand can really prove out product market fit online because of all the, the friction that a consumer needs to go through to buy a product online. Success online is generally speaking a very good leading indicator for success in, in retail. Uh, you get a lot of data about your customers, uh, their age, their gender, uh, their interests and characteristics, where, uh, where they live. Uh, the types of area codes that they live in and, and that data could then all be used to really set the framework for uh, the type of, of, of retailers that, uh, that, that you want to go and, uh, and, and, and launch into. Uh, and then, you know, be, um, you know, beyond that, uh, if, you, if you build a really strong brand online, uh, you know, generally speaking, it's going to get retailers attention. And, and so a lot of the the barriers to, to new age brands going into retail get removed, you know, the expensive slotting fees and uh, the, the highly requested, you know, trade spend, uh, the, where you are in the store, these all become negotiables. And we've seen that with, with our brands where we can go in and say, hey, this is how we're thinking about the types of stores we want to be in and uh, the certain banners and, you know, no interest in paying slotting fees, so on and so forth. And if the, if the, if the retail partners, you know, approach you, that's, uh, it, it can be a really, uh, really constructive uh, conversation. And then um, the last thing I'd note, just because somebody was talking about, you know, snacks.com and, and like one of just to kind of bring it back to, to direct to consumer and e-com, one of the most powerful things about D2C in food and beverage is the playing field has, has been leveled with, with incumbents that have been around for, uh, for decades. And you have snacks.com, Pepsi's offering was launched in May of 2020. And so the fact that, that you can be going, you know, almost one-to-one -one with, uh, with the incumbents on a, on a super high growth channel uh, is, is a great way to, uh, to outpunch your, your potential competition versus outperforming a Pepsi on, on shelf given their infrastructure and resources is, is, is really hard. Uh, so that's something that, that gets us, you know, super excited about uh, e-com and, and, and building our brands online first is uh, it's more of a level playing field versus, uh, versus the, the traditional uh, retail landscape. Terrific. So, I mean, 
I guess we have talked about how uh, having an omni-channel strategy, leveraging data, leveraging being a digital native incumbent can be a critical part of the business in, in these in this, uh, emerging brands, right? And can bring a lot of competitive advantages vis-a-vis -vis other traditional investors. But one thing that we often uh, find about these kind of emerging brands is how they can become operationally more effective. Uh, and mostly in terms of manufacturing and distribution in the earlier stages where they have limited resources, how can these brands uh, gain this physical shelf space vis-a-vis -vis more consolidated play players in the market uh, in, 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 this, in this kind of situations? I know, Smriti, perhaps we can uh, hear your thoughts on this. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, it, it, it's a good question. I think, you know, as Harrison touched on, I do think that the, the playing field is, is more level than ever before. Of course, there are still challenges, right, uh, to getting a foot in the door and getting on either the physical shelf or the digital shelf with, with mainstream retailers. You know, I think it's, there's, there's like a moment of opportunity. And I think the first step is for brands to recognize that because not only is shopper behavior changing dramatically, which means there's a moment where like consumers are sort of rethinking their purchases and, and their habits and, and retailers are rethinking things too, right? Because their operations have transformed almost overnight. Um, you know, they, uh, they are pushing their private label, right? More than ever before. And so traditional brands now have to defend against private label. So there's like almost just like a lot of shifts happening in the market that I think gives emerging brands this moment of opportunity, right? To say like, hey, we belong in the new normal. Um, and, and I think, you know, some of that is building your own great sort of online presence, digital strategy, making a name for yourself. I think some of that is also recognizing like, who are you and who are you not, right? And I think, um, you know, to give an example, like some of that is, okay, you know, if you can leverage technology in a way that, you know, large scale legacy brands cannot, you may be able to squeeze out more margin, you know, per product sold than, than traditional brands because you don't have, you know, expensive distributors, you know, you're, you're using data to decide how many SKUs you need to produce at what time. You're probably using, you know, data and maybe digital tools and maybe even AI within your, your manufacturing environment, right? And if you can do that and you can eke out more margin, maybe you can, you know, give some of that margin to retailers and become sort of like, you know, use that sort of penetrative pricing, right, to get a foot in the door. Conversely, um, you know, maybe you don't have the ad dollars to compete on traditional uh, cable television, right? And you're not competing for the ad spots with some of these larger brands that have basically built their bread and butter on, on TV ads because they're appealing to, you know, young families of a certain type uh, with a certain disposable income. And, and maybe that's okay, right? Is that you don't need to compete there. So I think just kind of knowing your DNA and knowing where you're competing and then leveraging kind of this, this moment of opportunity is, again, maybe sounds, sounds sort of high level, but I think thinking that way is, is, is helpful. Um, and then I think the last piece is, is, is kind of, um, you know, uh, Harrison alluded to a couple questions ago, it's just around leveraging kind of having that, that digital strategy work for you, right? And I think it really is leveraging things like SEO and, and, you know, smart product listings, because there is a ton of synergy between online and offline presence. Um, you know, I think even just the fact that today retailers, their operations have changed and they can actually list a lot more products than they were ever able to have in store that's a huge opportunity, but they're not gonna bring in everyone, right? And you wanna show them, you wanna demonstrate that like, even if you do get a foot in the door, you can sustain sales at a certain level and that onus is on you because very often you are in a better position to market and sell your product even through you know, a retail channel uh, than the retailer is, right? You know your audience, you know the, the words to be using and how to be searchable and all of that. So I think that taking that, that onus upon you know, the brand and making sure once you do have a foot in the door, you really are demonstrating to, to retailers like, hey, we should be here to stay. Great. Harrison, how are the, the, the brands at the naked market addressing this topic? In regards to just like the, the difficulties for gaining shelf space, is that? Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, so for us, it, it comes down to, to a couple things and, and briefly touched on them before. The first is, uh, you know, when when we sit down with retailers, we are armed with data on why our product will do well in their stores, right? And and how our product and and it's leveraging the online data that we get to really tell the the uh, the retail story. 
Uh, and so that, you know, will, will be kind of more high level macro data, like, you know, our Amazon rankings, you know, launching is a number one new product uh, where we rank uh, generally in the category. Uh, so if we're a top 20 performing category on our product and they're carrying, you know, 50 SKUs, there's no reason why we, we, we shouldn't be, uh, we shouldn't be in the store. And then we dive, you know, deeper into what our demographics are and how that overlaps with, uh, with, with their physical footprint and uh, what our regional uh, sales distribution looks like and, and so on and so forth. And so, you know, rather than us coming to the table with, um, you know, with just a product, we come to the table with a product and, and, uh, and, and a story and we find that that, that really uh, resonates well. But, you know, sometimes that doesn't allow us to overcome uh, some of those upfront costs of rolling into retail, a lot of the slotting fees. And, and those are very challenging for new age brands. And, you know, the, the, the dream, as I alluded to before, on how to overcome those is you build a strong enough brand that the retailer wants you. Uh, and then, and then a real challenging port, uh, uh, part that, uh, that there doesn't seem to be much of a workaround is the physical support needed to scale a brand in retail. You know, one thing that that we love about the the online world is is the scalability of it. Uh, when you know every incremental uh, sale doesn't uh, or uh, region you're rolling out out to from an online perspective doesn't need necessarily more people uh, versus you know, from a retail perspective, when you roll out into a new region, uh, there, there's going to be associated, you know, human capital that that needs to go uh, behind that. So it's 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 not perfect, uh, but there's uh, there's ways that uh, playing field has has been uh, has been leveled. Good, very interesting, definitely. Um, so I want to shift a little bit the conversation here and talk about uh, alternative proteins. I mean, at the end of the day, alternative proteins are a huge part of the way food in general is, is, is changing and, and all these uh, different uh, shifts in behavior on, on, the, on the customers in, in any, any kind of food, uh, of food vertical. But right now we have even seen, uh, I mean, you at Evolve, Smithy, you, you invest in alternative proteins, but we have also seen a lot of VCs which are focused in this space. So what is the role and the potential that alternative proteins play in the healthy snacks development? I know, Smriti, perhaps we can start with you. Yeah, I'm happy to, to kick it off. Um, you know, I think, I think what's great about like the modern alternative protein movement um, is even the brands that aren't playing in snacks today, which are sort of some of these like, you know, the, this generation of very large scale brands like Impossible Foods and Beyond, et cetera, um, have created uh, a culture of or established basically a paradigm um, where their primary consumer is not a vegetarian or a vegan, right, is, is a flexitarian. Um, I think it's something like the most recent data is like 93% of like Beyond Burger consumers also eat meat, right? Uh, and I think that just sets a great stage for the future of emerging brands that are using alternative proteins as sort of a, a hero ingredient in their snacks, because it just means the market is that much larger. And you're not just thinking about how do I address the, the needs and pain points of the vegan or vegetarian population, which, you know, is I think at best three to 6% of the population, at least in the U.S., um, how do I think about like mass market, right? And so you're combining this trend of alternative proteins with like how the mass market likes to snack. On top of that, I think even before alternative proteins or, or maybe in parallel with it, the protein-based snack has also become front and center. And so, you know, again, snacks going from chips and cookies to being like nuts, cheese, um, you know, pieces of chicken and turkey and jerky. Um, so again, it's, it's like this great convergence of the market can be really huge and people already were really excited about protein-based snacking. Uh, I think some of the challenges we talked earlier about, you know, how do you, you build a great product that people want to eat, but also keep it clean, you know, healthy, low sodium, low fat. Those will be challenges in snacking as with anything else, because you're not just, um, you know, looking to build a, an alternative protein product, but addressing the, the growing consumer needs of, of healthier uh, alternatives, but there may be an opportunity, right, for more of that like indulgence play in snacking, right, than, than maybe there has been in, in sort of like the core, um, you know, maybe entree based alternative protein products out there. Uh, and, and I think that's an interesting strategy to take. So is the strategy of, of you know, maybe being really, really, really hyper focused on health and wellness in addition to bringing alternative proteins to the table. And then I think 
the last thing that's kind of interesting is that, um, you know, outside of soy, pea protein, and some of the, the more common plant-based alternatives that we've seen in the market, there are some, some you know, newer and quickly growing uh, alternative proteins or, or kind of protein alternatives or substances that are being used that may lend themselves even more favorably to snacks. Um, you know, mycelium, which is sort of a, a fungus and mushroom derived um, uh, substance often proliferated uh, using various forms of technology or synthetic biology, but also found in nature. Um, has a very unique texture that actually, you know, some companies have found is very conducive to building a jerky product, right? And so it may give snacking as a use case and an occasion may give proteins that haven't quite found their space in the traditional alternative protein market or, or consumption occasion may find their moment in snacking because there's just a ton of unique opportunity there. Nice. Harrison, what are, what are your thoughts in this increasing I trend? That, I think that was an incredibly insightful answer. And, uh, and I, I think that, that she absolutely nailed it. And so no need for, for me to, to double up on, on, on anything said. So Great. So obviously, this is, I mean, the, the snack industry is growing very, very fast. We have a lot of busy investors involved in this industry. And obviously, Evolve is, is one of those investors. What do you look in this industry, you know, when you make investment considerations in Shriti? And also, we have a lot of emerging brands. There are thousands of brands emerging every other day, not only in the U.S., but globally. How do you differentiate, uh, you know, the different brands uh, every day as you look into investment opportunities? It's hard is the short answer, right? Um, because there are so many great brands out there and the barriers to, to you know, launching a brand have really come down. It, it's very difficult. I think here at Evolve, the way we think about it is um, there are a few driving principles or sort of criteria we look for. And then there's like the special sauce, right? Where we, we can't quite figure out what it is about a certain brand or a product. Sometimes it's the team, sometimes it's the story. Sometimes it's something we can't even put our finger on. That's kind of like the X factor, right? And, and we, we often rely more on that um, in this category than, than with anything else because it is so hard to identify, you know, what that next big brand is going to be and who's going to kind of resonate with the market. In terms of, you know, some of the, the principles we apply, it really comes back to us, uh, for us to that, that technology unlock, right, is there may be great brands out there that are absolutely going to turn into billion dollar brands, but um, if they don't have a, a technology unlock where they're doing something differently that is defensible, that is unique, that maybe larger brands cannot do because they don't have the in-house technical expertise, or maybe um, you know that that really requires some upfront R and D that creates sort of um, you know a, a kind of a barrier to entry, right, for for other emerging brands. We tend not to to look at those companies unless they have that that kind of unlock. So I think that's number one. Um, and then number two is, is really, I think, alignment with consumer trends that aren't necessarily purely just about health and wellness, right? Of course, we're looking for, for healthier products and snacks because that is, you know, a, a huge trend in the market. But can you also be sustainably sourced? Can you also personalize in some way, right? Can you also tell a story that addresses some other consumer need or pain point or, or message, right, that, that will resonate with consumers? Maybe it's convenience, right? Um, Maybe it's, um, you know, you're, you're regional and local. And so kind of appealing to something else in addition to the health story is, um, I think, always really exciting to us. And then I think the last piece is acknowledging at the end of the day, and this is maybe almost uh, you know, contradicts a little bit what I said about the technology, although that is still very much true, is at the end of the day, like food and beverage retail, it's, it's a lot of it is an execution play, right? And I think um, it's, it's really about like, how are you thinking about going into retail? Like, what is the operational efficiency that the business can build? What are you insourcing? What are you outsourcing? And a lot of those decisions aren't easy ones, but, but it's almost, if you have a good brand uh, and a good product, if you can execute, you can turn that into a great brand and great product. And, um, and I think, you know, we're sometimes okay with, with um, knowing that like, we're going to have to lean in with some of these companies and really help them with the execution because that's really going to be how this this business differentiates itself. No, terrific. And I I, I want to echo what what you just tell about emerging brands, better for you brands, not only being better for you in terms of the product and what they offer to the customer, but like being better for you for humankind. If if, if you want to tell this, so I mean, 
for example, in, in the naked market, you, um, Harrison, you, you have the purpose of building a portfolio of brands that are committed in, in giving back to the world in a meaningful way. So in, the, in, this, in this sense, we can have brands that, have, that use sustain, sustainable packaging, that have some aspect of social responsibility. So what are those aspects or strategies that were for you brands uh, are, are doing to make this possible and, and, and create this uh, even richer offering to the, to the end consumer? Yeah, absolutely. So, so the way it, it, it starts with, with us uh, is first and foremost, it's having a nutritional value proposition to the consumer over the uh, existing competitive landscape. Uh, so playing into uh, a, a trend that, that the, the market leader we are going after is, is, is not um, and having a, a real value proposition to, to the consumer uh, and, and that better for you offering. Uh, once that has been addressed, uh, when it comes to packaging, ingredient sourcing, uh, certifications, everything starts at the highest level. Uh, and then we ultimately work our way down in regards to what's economic and what's not. And so if there's a, you know, so everything will we'll want to start uh, from, if we look at an, an ingredient sourcing perspective, everything will want to start, uh, you know, the, the highest quality possible, organic, uh, et cetera, et cetera. If, if we notice like the margin differentiate, margin differentials are just too big to really make a product that can scale through the US, that's when we start going, uh, uh, going down because ultimately we need to have the, uh, the products uh, affordable and, uh, and accessible to, uh, to, to our, our, our target demo. And the same thing from a packaging perspective. So we'll start as, uh, at, at the frontier of, of how environmentally friendly it can be. Uh, and then we'll work our way down and, and, and make sure that we, we have that right combination of uh, environmental friendliness with, uh, with, with uh, costing while always holding a, a minimum threshold across each, uh, each vertical. And obviously there is a great disruption right now from healthy better for you brands, but will we reach in a point where most of the snacking consumption comes really from healthy and better for you brands, or first of all, and also is price sensitivity a concern in order to be scalable and the adoption in order to come from these type of products? Smriti, what do you think? Yeah, um, so I, I absolutely think we'll reach a point, right, where most snacking consumption is at least can tell a better for you story, right? It may not look like, hey, this is you know completely sugar-free and, and fat-free and all of that, but it's better for you than what existed in this category 10 years ago. And, and I think we're already seeing that, right? I think I said something like 80% already of, of snacks in the market have a better for you tag that can be associated with them. Um, now the question is like, what is the standard, right? And, and is being you know 20% reduced fat gonna be good enough or, are our consumers going to demand that things, you know, take that like next level approach to what better for you means, right? And I think that's where like it's almost what is better for you is a question that you asked earlier. And I think depending on the definition of that, right, we'll we'll see the growth of that market. I think um, you know while on, to your point on on kind of price point, I think while the data certainly shows that consumers are willing to pay more for better products, both better for you and better for the planet, um, it's not unlimited, right? And and the thing with snacks as a category is. Um, it, it's not a need to have, it's a nice to have, depending on who you ask, right? For me, it's a need to have, but, um, but, but I think for snacks to really win, right? You, we talked earlier about like, you need to appeal to that familiarity, that emotional quotient, which is associated with snacking traditionally. Um, but maybe you also need to appeal to a certain price point more so than, you know, some of the other alternatives out there, right? These are not supplements where I feel like I need to take it and I'm actually watching my vitamin levels shift. This is a moment in the day that, you know, I, I feel like eating something, but it's not quite dinner, it's not quite lunch, right? Um, so, so price may matter more than ever. Uh, and I think that, you know, again, it comes down to like leveraging the things that emerging brands can be good at to be able to get there on price, whether it's um, balancing, right, what you're doing in house versus what you're doing outside. I think we've seen, um, you know, a lot of brands start vertically integrated because you wanna keep all of the secret sauce of what you're building to yourself eventually it's like, well, you know, you may not be the right ones to be doing your logistics because you just don't have the scale. So be okay with that, right? And I think similarly, um, you know, I think what we'll start to see in alternative proteins, for example, is 
a lot of these businesses have been fully vertically integrated. They don't want to outsource anything because, you know, their product is like their, their sort of secret sauce. But, um, but, but you're starting to see these enablers come about, right, where their business is building, okay, we're going to be the, you know, textured vegetable protein input built for alternative, you know, meats. And, and then you'll start to see kind of almost the sophistication of, of the supply chain or the ecosystem allowing brands to not have to take on all that cost themselves and then to be able to get to market faster at a lower price point. And I think snack brands, just like with any other, you know, better for you food brand should be sort of keeping their eyes on the market, right? And thinking about when do we shift our business model to leverage scale that other businesses may have a little bit more. Um, and then I think for legacy brands, you know, it's, 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 it's almost a different equation because they're used to like these tight budgets, you know, these like annual budget cycles, um, investor expectations, you know, projections that they have to meet, stock prices that they have to like, you know, tie to. Um, and, and thinking about how they innovate, right, is a whole different, um, you know, maybe, maybe uh, context. And I think leveraging technology is certainly a big part of that. And, and things like AI and machine learning and the product development world are really powerful. Um, and then really, you know, making sure that they're, they're pushing themselves, right, to expose themselves to what innovation is, is, um, is coming, you know, in their space and, and being ready to address that, right? Um, so it's, you know, I know that's high level, but I think that there are, there are challenges on both sides for both emerging brands and, uh, and larger brands, but, but being price competitive, no matter what, is, is going to be an important part of the strategy. Sounds good. Harrison? Uh, yeah, so I, I would say, you know, to, to build off uh, the, the tail end of that on, on the pricing side, I, I think the reality of, of the world we, we live in today is if you really want uh, your brand to become a household name across the US, then you need to be able to compete on price. And the unfortunate reality for a, a new age brand is the infrastructure, uh, the pricing infrastructure that enables you to get your first 10 to 20 plus million dollars in sales uh, there's very likely a, a, a serious level of investment that needs to, to change as you continue scaling from the 20 to $100 million in sales. Uh, and uh, it, it all comes down to what, what the aspirations of, 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 of the brand is, as, as you know, to, to move from a Whole Foods to a, a, a Walmart, you're, you're looking at a, a very different uh, a, a very different cost structure and uh, oftentimes investment associated with that. Uh, and then on, on the first part of, of the question, uh, which was, uh, I guess, the long-term penetration of better for you snacking, you know, I, I think that the, the structural growth of, of better for you eating is, is undeniable, but what can't be ignored is, is food as much as it's transactional, it's, it's experiential. Mm -hmm. uh, and a large part of that experiential side of food is, is true indulgence. Uh, and, you know, the, the, the sugar highs of, of ice cream and, and, uh, brownies and and there'll always be a, a a pocket for for that, but we'll I think we'll just consistently see a gradual improvement of uh, of, of everything else, which fares great for uh, for new age brands like uh, it, it, within our entire ecosystem. Thanks, Harrison. So it's been so far a very insightful conversation. I guess it's time to start wrapping up. So. The next and the last question is, how will the future look for healthy and better for you snacks? What are you mo most excited about? Harrison, we can begin with your thoughts. Yeah, for, for us, what uh, I think what we're most excited about is, is the structural tailwind behind us uh, and the e-commerce channel to, uh, to, to gain consumer mind share, uh, which will set our brands to be in a position to uh, to make a really strong impact in, uh, in in the retail world. I think I'd feel very different about being a, a, a food and beverage entrepreneur 10 years ago where uh, channel differentiation uh, would have been a lot harder. So, you know, the combination of, uh, of changing consumer preferences and, and eating trends with uh, with the online channel opening up is is the perfect sweet spot for disruption as we've seen in many other categories uh, in in consumer products and where food and beverages uh, is is a is a bit of a laggard. So in regards to what that means to uh, to to the future of, of healthy snacks, I think I think you're going to see a lot more digital digitally native brands proving themselves out uh, before ultimately uh, making a, a pretty big impact on. Uh, on, on the shelves across uh, across retailers in, in, in the U.S. 
Good, Smriti. Yeah, I mean, I think I totally agree with that. I think everything we've talked about, you know, a lot of themes that, that I'm excited about, maybe two quick things we haven't completely touched on that are, are themes I'm really excited about. And I'd love to see more emerging brands kind of tackle these, these challenges, which are truly challenges, but I think opportunities, I think one is, is this like notion of food as medicine, right? So not just better for you because we're eliminating the bad, but better for you because we're actually building a product around the good. And, and it turns from being something that's preventing you from getting unhealthy to actually improving your health and, and preventing or addressing, you know, chronic disease, ailments, illness, et cetera. And we, you know, the, the work is starting to be done to identify so many naturally occurring ingredients and compounds that have those properties. And um, you're seeing entire like, you know, um, uh, even medicine brands are right, being built around this idea of like naturally derived, the pharma industry is taking notice, but even just in like the food and snacking world, right? Can you, can you start to turn your snack into almost like your vitamins for the day, right? Um, and so I think we'd love to see more, more brands kind of tackle that and see the emergence of that. And, and maybe the second is, um, is this idea of like personalization. You know, certainly as we talked about, there are a lot of different approaches and skew types out there addressing different pain points around health and wellness. But in general, like, you know, food is a very personal thing, even just from a preferential standpoint. And then when you like get down to the biology of it, the way our bodies react to foods are also very different. Um, and so I think, you know, seeing, seeing technology as a way to figure out how do you create like personal variants of the different snacks available to, to people and maybe even create like feedback loops, right? Where I can say, hey, like, this is what I liked. This is what I didn't like. This is how my body felt after I ate that. Now, can you incorporate that into the next product I buy for you or even what you recommend to me? Um, the, the, you know, what is the right way to approach it and what's too many different variants and what's too few? Like, those are all big questions that we as investors, like we don't know the answer to. And um, I, I think everyone's like excited about this idea of personalization, but then how you go execute on it is, is a big question mark. So it's just something I'm excited to kind of watch and see how, how people, you know, start to approach that. Terrific. Thanks so much, both of you, for such a great conversation. It's been very insightful uh, again. And thank you to all of our attendees for joining today. Thank you, uh, Smriti Jajaraman, uh, principal at Evolve Ventures, and Harrison Fukman, co-founder and CEO at The Naked Market. Also, thank you to our allies, Asem, Megave, Gan, Generation Nest, Global Corporate Venturing, Innovas360, Ifical Afghan VC Academy. Don't forget to follow us on our uh, networks in LinkedIn, in Spotify, in Twitter, in, and in Medium as ACB underscore VC. And we hope uh, we can see you again on our next webinar on July 21st, which will be about retail and express delivery. Thank you so much, everyone. Thank you Thank so much. You.